Right. Okay. Um, an unusual edition of Up the Poly this week. Um, I'm the I'm the guest. <laughs> so so um, I've, I've done this, just done the, the spine race and um, and I, this is going to sound a bit um, self-indulgent, I suppose, but. I've had quite a few people ask me, are you going to do a podcast about it? And, and it would be quite nice to talk about it. I'm not going to deny it. It's, it's, it's on my mind a lot. Um, so came up with the idea that I would ask, get Jonathan Jameson to talk to me about it. Jonathan knows all about running long, long distances uh, and all the various discomforts and frustrations that go with it. Um, my voice will hopefully hold up. I did lose my voice during the race. So it's a bit croaky, but I think I'm all right. Um, so this episode is going to be <clears throat> me introducing it and then handing over to JJ, who's going to talk to me about this race. So hi, JJ. <laughs> Hiya, Mark. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm a bit tired. You look it. I know people can't see this, but you do look a little uh, a little tired still. Yeah. yeah. It's been six days since I finished. And I'm still flagging. So... <clears throat> So are you okay for me just to um to pick yeah. this up then? Yeah, Brilliant. yeah. I mean, you can fire away. I'm 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 intrigued. I'm all, I'm I'm ready. Well, look, I think I think it's probably only fair. I mean, I I know you've had a few people, and I've had a few people speak to me say, "Oh, you know, I hope Mark sort of talks a bit about spine." And I think it would be great to get a, a good conversation about the whole experience because I think you've had a lot of people watching your dot and we can explain that to people as we go along. But I think um, it seems only right and proper to start at the beginning, like you do yourself with other people and just maybe do a bit of a, of a conversation about sort of where you started in terms of running and, and yeah. you know, what running means to you, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, gosh. Well, I'm, I didn't, I started running. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 48 now. I started running when I was 30 um so i was but i've been in the hills since i was sort of 14 and i was i was a hill walker really and then a climber i did quite a lot of um, in my 20s did quite a bit of um alpine stuff and I, and i did loads of fell walking so i tried to buy i bagged all the wainwrights before i was a runner i did them all wow. as a walker uh, it took me you know, 10 12 years to sort of tick them all off but that was my mission really and, and I did see fell runners out and about but I thought that was something other people did um I just never thought I'd be able to do it I wasn't interested in running at all but then Alison took my wife took up running um, through work and I kind of tagged along a bit and then also had a climbing accident um in the Alps um which scared the living daylights out of me and actually put me off doing it um so all these sort of forces came together and in the early noughties I kind of started running um, on the roads initially my first race was the Liverpool 10k in the year 2000 <clears throat> and um, and then I realized that rather than hang around on, on a crag all day climbing I could actually run on the hills and see more of them um, or you know do a bit more than I would if I was walking and it all came together. So I joined a club. I lived in Chester at the time. So I joined Tatton Hall Runners, who are a little village club in Cheshire, who do a lot of off-road running. And that was it. I mean, that, the bug just, I was just knocked for six by it all. I did my first fell race in 2003, the Blancastra race, which I think is on this weekend, actually. Um, and just absorbed myself in the sport. Alison got really into road running and triathlon, but I went into fell running because I knew the mountains already. So I yeah. found that even though I wasn't that fit, 
I knew the hills and I, and I found myself climbing up the leaderboard, you know, getting towards the mid pack from the back quite quickly because I knew that I didn't get lost and I found that I had a bit of an affinity. So, yeah, that was that really. And I just, I've just been fell running ever since. But as I got, I did the Bob Graham in 2007. So that's the big round in the lakes. And I really, I really couldn't believe that I'd done it. I, I thought that was going to be, well, it was at the limit of what I could do. And ever since then, as I've got older and I'm not hitting BBs anymore, <clears throat> excuse me, I kind of wanted to go longer rather than faster. And that's what's led to ultra running, really. So I love fell running still. But over the last sort of few years, um, I've tried to think, about, well, how far can I actually go? And can I just take you back there a bit then, Mark? Because yeah. I think you, you mentioned there, I mean, so that sounds like you went from road running to fell running really quickly. Yeah. But maybe people don't know you've done half marathons marathons yeah yeah i did loads of them i mean we did we i think i mean i did the london marathon in twice so um i did i did it in 2003 and that was hell <laughs> just totally un underestimated marathons and um I, I i did scrape under four hours but i was a wreck but then I then I did it again in 2006, took it really seriously. And I was, right. for intents and purposes, for that year, I was a roadrunner. And I, what did I do, 3.07 or something like that? I can't remember. Wow, okay. I didn't ever break three hours, but I was I, I got really fit and I got really into it. And um, and I loved it. I really did. But the fouls yeah. were always calling, you know, so I felt a bit torn. And I got, I, I did enjoy roadrunning. I did lots of 10Ks, I did lots of, I didn't do so many 5Ks until Park Run came along, and even then, um, but yeah, I did, I totally got into road running, it was, it, and, I, and I don't have a problem with it now, it's just that the, my heart sort of tends to go towards the mountains. and, the, and well, well, you did sort of, you did casually say then that, oh yeah, and I did a Bob Green round, I, I think, I mean, that could be a podcast on its own, but it's probably worth sharing, just tell everybody what a Bob Green round consists of. Yeah, I mean, we've we've got four people in the club that have done it now. Um, it's it's a sixty six mile circuit in the lakes. Um, in the, it starts and finishes in Keswick, and you have to summit forty two prescribed summits that Bob Graham himself did in nineteen thirty two, when he set what was then the twenty four hour record for number of summits, and you have to do it in twenty four hours. You have to be witnessed on every summit. Somebody has to see you get to each top. And you yeah. have to get back. And they're the only two rules. Under 24 hours, visit all the summits, be witness, and set three rules. And um, so, it, but there are obviously optimum routes and they're quite well known. So I spent, after I'd done the London Marathon, I spent a full year training for it, wrecking the hell out of it. And I think what I discovered when I did the Bob Graham <clears throat> um, was I loved wrecking. I loved pre the preparation. Um, so when you when you know every line and you every, you know every bloody boulder even there's, there's a boulder on the back of back of Blancaster that I still remember from 14 years <laughs> that if you turn right there and get a half uphill you, you you cut in a corner and you're going to save about two minutes and and the satisfaction of working all that out over a long route really really appealed to me because I was never going to win anything you know I'm not one of I'm not a sort of fast athlete but. I can prepare for things. I know the mountains really well. So I thought, well, that's my thing, isn't it? That's got to be my thing, surely. So I did the Bob Graham. I had brilliant support from a club. <clears throat> and we hadn't had many completers in our club then. So it was it was a bit like the poly when people have done it more recently. We didn't have that many people that had done it. And, um, and yeah, so it was actually 14 years ago yesterday 
that I got round and in the summer and um, I did a winter one a couple of years later, which was because <laughs> I got made redundant in the summer and I was <clears throat> on gardening leave and no children at this point. So I had loads of time. So I thought, well, I might as well do a winter round. <laughs> uh, trained for it and and uh, there's photographs of Alison's or eight months pregnant with me, <laughs> the road crossings with me in the middle of bloody winter. Um, so I, I really, really reveled in that. And I found that even though, like I say, I'm never going to win anything, but these achievements were reachable for me. I felt like I was yeah. I, I'm really motivated by that. Um, and to this day, I love helping out on Bob Graham's. I helped out on one the other week. And it's a real institution. It's a real sort of thing in fell running that you kind of got to get it on your CV if you, if you want to sort of explore that sport. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So that you said that was about 2007. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened bet- between 2007 and sort of up to, to sort of more up to date in terms of, I mean, Bob Graham, you said about 63 miles. Yeah. And now we're talking about the spine, which when we come to it, you'll explain the distance. What, yeah. what, what happened between those two times to get you from that distance to, to this one? Well, quite a number of things. I think once I've done the BG, um, I spent a few years supporting other ones and just immersing myself in that because you have to pay, you have to almost pay the debt. So a lot of my friends that were on my round did rounds the, f- the subsequent couple of years. So lovely summers, just helping out on loads of BGs. And that for me was enough. I just did loads of fell races. I was quite keen to tick off all the big classics. So the things like the Isle of Jura, um, you know, the all the big Lakeland classic races. I've done most of them a couple of times now. Um, the Three Peaks in Yorkshire. A lot, I just wanted to, to, to collect almost all these big races um, like I say, not 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 winning any prizes, but also just to explore the, 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 the shorter races and places that I'd never been. So I lived in Chester, obviously on the Welsh border. So I remember doing a race called the Nantymoch Skyline in, in 2006. There were only 12 competitors. It was the arse end of nowhere. And it was around Penlimon and, and this big reservoir called the Nantymoch. And it was the most desolate and bleak part of Wales. It was stunning. I remember thinking, I know this is a race, but do you know what? This is just a joy. I, I think I was like seventh or eighth runner to finish. <clears throat> I wasn't really that into the race. It, it was just a fantastic way of exploring really remote parts of the countryside. So I spent the years after doing the BG just doing lots of different fell races, really. And, and I wasn't really pushing the distance Um that much <clears throat> just just wanted to get more experience and I think that's what ultimately after a while I, I felt like I'd saturated myself with that um I'd done just about all the big races and it's one class one one of the newer bigger races that I haven't done which I'll get around to but the old, and um and I thought well we then we relocated up here in 2015 yeah. and around about that time I was starting to think about longer distance stuff. Um, I was looking at the UTMB, but it got very commercial, the, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, so not sure about that. And then the Pennine Way had always appealed to me that there wasn't a spine race. I just quite liked the idea of doing it. And then when the spine race came along, which was 10 years ago, <clears throat> I started hankering. It was only a winter race then. I was okay. thinking about doing <clears throat> it, but I didn't really take it seriously until a bit later. 
So, I mean, I, I think obviously people will be dead interested to understand a little bit more about what the Spine race is. So you've said it, it's the Pennine Way, but actually it's, it's the whole Pennine Way. Yeah. So can, you, can you give us some of the stats around that, if that's yeah, possible? So what's absolutely. the distance and things? So it, it's 268 miles, which when I say, every time I say it, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, it, and it starts in Edale in Derbyshire, <clears throat> and it finishes in Kirkyetum, which is just over the Scottish border in the northern Cheviots. Um, just sort of kind of half an hour up north of Wooler. And, and it, it, it doesn't take a very direct route at all between those two points. If you put a ruler on the map, they're 150 miles apart or maybe a little bit. Okay. More. But yeah. you're running almost twice that. It, it's a very sinuous route. It, it, <clears throat> it goes over very remote terrain. The Pennines are they're not as high as the lakes uh, generally, but they're, they're harder to navigate. There's fewer features. There's quite a lot of bogs. There, there are some stunning hills and mountains amongst them, but there's quite a lot of quite boring tracts as well. But it, as a route, it, 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 it threads together nicely. So it goes through Derbyshire, Yorkshire, uh, a little bit of Lancashire, and then you're into Durham along the River Tees, um, and then over to Cumbria on the, in the Cumbrian Pennines to, play, to, to Dufton, over the really high Pennines and the Cross Fell, which is actually pretty high mountain. Um, I think it, it's about the eighth highest mountain in, in England. And right. then you, you drop down into Alston, uh, and then from there you cross into Northumberland at Slaggyford, which we'll come on to Slaggyford in a bit. Yeah, um, <laughs> come under that, yeah. Yeah, that's just inside Northumberland, and then you're in Northumberland to Hadrian's Wall. You do a 10-mile section on Hadrian's Wall, which is really up and down, and then north into the Kilda Forest uh, and to Bellingham, and then from there over some the southern sort of outlines of the Cheviots, then a, and then a full traverse of the Cheviots to finish, which is hellish. And then you drop off the final, the, the shill on, on the summit, uh, the border, into Scotland, and the last five miles are in Scotland, and you drop into this little beautiful little Scottish village, and then it's all done. So it's a long bloody way. <laughs> yeah, and you said that it, obviously the spine race itself started. You said about ten years ago. So yeah. what's the what's the expectation of somebody who's starting the spine? What are the limits that you have to sort of meet to, yeah. to achieve the uh, the race itself? There's a lot of cutoffs, and you've got to be quite careful. Um, so there are five checkpoints along the route, uh, and they're not equidistant by any means. And but you have a week to do the entire route, um, so seven days. And each, so the first checkpoint is at Hebden Bridge, which is about 43, 44 miles in. You've got to be in and out of there in 24 hours. And uh, then there's a, the next checkpoint isn't for another 65 miles. It's a really big section that, but there is an intermediate place where they check on you. But at checkpoints, you get access to your kit, your drop bag with all your spare yeah. stuff. At intermediate checkpoints, you don't. So you get 40 miles to Malamtan where you can, they'll check on you and they'll give you hot water and, and um, you know, they might look at your feet, but then you've got another 26 or so to get to the, your drop bag. And that's just outside Halls in the Yorkshire Dales, in Wensleydale. And then um, the third checkpoint, so you've got 40, no, you've got 60 hours to get there and out. And that's the finish line of the shorter race, which is called the Challenger. I mean, people yeah. call it the fun run, but it's 108 miles. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, no mean feet by any means. And then you've got the third checkpoints in Middleton in Teesdale, which is another 36 miles on. Um, and you've got, I think, 72 hours to get there and out. 
and they're, honestly, it's to the minute. So if you're you're arriving at the checkpoint and you've only got like five minutes, they will literally shove food in your mouth and shove you out the door because they're desperate for you to finish, but they will yeah. enforce the cutoffs very, very strictly. And then Alston uh, is checkpoint four. I forget what that one is in terms, I think it's five days, the, check, the, the deadline there. And then Bellingham is checkpoint five, another 45 miles on, which is six days. And then clearly you've got seven days to finish. So it, it's... The cutoffs, they say they're quite generous, but it, you, all you need to have is one bad day or one mishap or one injury. And all of a sudden they start to become quite real. And this year and the summer race, 54% of the starters finished and about half of those that didn't finish were timed out. Um, right. So it, 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 it can count. And it's, it's something that you're always aware of for sure. And, and so I guess moving from a Bob Graham to a to Spain race, what over those years you talked a bit about doing some of the fell races, the longer fell races, but how do you actually prepare to to be ready to run for potentially seven days over 268 miles? What, what's the training like? What do you do? I know you're very thorough. People might not know because you, you don't always post on Strava, but I know the thoroughness that you put into recce's and, and, and going to, to do the places, but how do you put all of that together in terms of that preparation? I think it's, it is a lot of planning and I think there's a lot of trial and error. Um, one thing that I mustn't uh, shy away from is that, okay, I've done the spine race twice now, but I've actually attempted it three times. I failed the <clears> first <throat> time in 2017 um, because I'd underestimated. What I did, I treated the spine in 2017 like a long fell race and it isn't. So a fell race, it, everything's minimal. So you get you take as little as you can get away with. Um, so you look at the statutory kit list and you take that and barely anything else. And you just and because you're only out for a few hours, you probably get away with it. So what I was finding is that I was just that bit too cold. I was just that bit too hungry. I was just that bit too. Uh, I was light and I was moving fast, but I got to 96 miles at Horton. I whacked my foot on a rock, bust it, and I got really cold, really down. And I just I just you know the medic said, look, you're not looking good, and I just binned it off. And I just wasn't prepared. So what I learned there is that it's not a long fell race. It's a different proposition, expedition. Um, so what I learned to do was slow down in order to speed up. I learned how to, it, it's kind of boring, but the way that I store my gear when I'm running, I've got a race vest and bum bag combo for the summer. And I know where everything is. And I'll always have good gear that might weigh a bit more and I'll have spare stuff and, I think going out and wrecking the route, but also practicing, right, I want my waterproof. How can I get that out with minimal fuss? If I need a snack, where, can I just grab it? Where are my gloves? Where's my head torch? Yeah. Where's my spare head torch? So I spent quite a long time, very meticulously, going out and practicing that stuff. And that's one of the reasons I went out a lot on my own, because nobody wants to watch some absolutely anally retentive bloke trying to get his torch out without looking. Oh, what I, I wanted the, the freedom and the, I don't want, I didn't want to be self-conscious and I just wanted to practice that sort of skill set because I felt to my mind I was never going to be like I say a faster runner but I could certainly be a, a slicker one so I spent a bit of time doing that and then obviously I just got I just extended the distances so I, did, I just went and did long training runs as well which I loved I did the the Abraham's tea round in the Lake District it's about 33 miles. We've got a lot of climbing in it. And I went and did it like a couple of weeks later, the other way around. 
um, and I just wanted to, to, to test this configuration uh, for long periods. I did the Cumbrian Traverse, which is a 40 odd mile route that goes from south to north lakes and it's just beautiful. Uh, so I, want, I, I kind of thought, well, I'm going to explore. I love exploring and I'm going to practice and I'm just going to extend the distances. But I just kind of slowed everything down and learned how to be organized. And I, I found myself really enjoying that. Yeah. Um, really kind of coming into my own thing. And this is a broader skill set. This isn't how fast am I. This is how together am I on the mountain. And um, I've, I've, I've got a big kick out of that. Certainly the, this last race, I, really, I think I nailed that. I think I got that right. But it took quite a few errors and mistakes. Um, I must say as well, and you'll, you'll appreciate this, I've also found that doing Hardmore's events has been lovely. I mean, the first time I used my race vest was on the Hardmore's 55 back in 2017. And I'd always run with a bum bag before as a fell runner. And just the idea of having the weight distribution differently and, and the friendliness and camaraderie of those events as well. I thought that they're a really good way in to ultra running. I, couldn't, I can't think of a better way of, 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 of pushing longer distances and doing some of those big hard malls events. Yeah. And I think that bit about, you know, because it must be hard for people to comprehend what a training run should look like. So you've mentioned they're doing runs of 33 or 40 miles yeah. in sort of you're all in one go. And I guess that's what builds you up. The, the kit bit I read on your blog, um, which everybody needs to read. It's brilliant. You get a cup of tea and, and have a sit down and read it. But things like the, the, the the necessity to know where things are. You talked about your head torch, you know, it was yeah. pitch black. Your head torch batteries went, you needed to know where your spare head torch was immediately. You couldn't have time to faff about. Yeah. And that's that thing about practice and, yeah. and sort of making sure you know where everything is. Yeah. I mean, that was, I was really, I've got to admit, I gave myself a little high five then because the storm was raining <laughs> pitch black. My head torch failed and I literally just put my hand zipped down, pulled it out on my head on and I was off again. Yeah, brilliant. I just thought, well done, mate, because I knew where it was and I knew that always have your, head, your, your spare head torch fully loaded and ready to go. It was just a habit. I'd never needed it as much as I needed it at that point. But I'd, all that prep and faff came together. I mean, I would have been all right if I'd have had to faff a bit, but I'd have got caught. yeah. yeah a bit down and I just experience as well the mark isn't it because yeah. some people would think well just take spare batteries but actually it's much easier to put your hand in your pocket and pull out a full head torch with batteries already in and just yeah. turn it on yeah. and try and sort of um so do, I'm interested in the kit that you've talked you've talked sure. a little bit about bits yeah. and pieces I yeah. love the bum bag and um, that's great you know where would you get away with wearing a bum bag and it being you know helpful and convenient and looking okay um but what what sort of kit you talked about um you know, when you got to the big checkpoints, your kit was already there. So how, what is that? What, what, what do you pack in, in, and what does it look like? You have, when you do the spine race, you have a, what's called your drop bag, which is all, your, all the eventualities. It's a big sports bag. It can't weigh more than 20 kilos um, and has to be waterproof. You can't tie anything to the outside of it. And you give it them at the start of the race. Um, you have to carry quite a lot of compulsory kit that you would expect so you have to carry waterproofs, spare warm layer, uh, map compass, head torch, spare batteries or spare torch, um, food, things like that, carrying capacity for water and on it goes. But in your drop bag, you have options. So you might have, you know, you'll have fresh clothes, fresh base layers. 
but you'll have, like I took two waterproofs, both of which were taped seams of decent waterproofs, but I had a very, a Pertex and I had a full on Gore-Tex. Um, and I flitted between the two according to the weather. Um, same with waterproof trousers, I had two different types. Um, I had normal, toe, normal in gingy toe socks, I had thicker ones and I had waterproof socks if I felt like I needed them. So on section three, I know there's a lot of quite an expansive bog called Sleet and Moor. I knew I had to have waterproof socks for crossing that if I was going to not get blisters. Uh, but a lot of the rest of the route was quite dry. So yeah. I was able to, to use my drop bags quite judiciously. And But the other thing I had in the drop bag, about a third of the weight was food, hill food. They feed you at the checkpoints, but your hill food is up to you. So lots of different options, lots of savory stuff, lots of sweet stuff. I was never going to eat it all, but what did I, what did I find I was eating well? And I would equip myself with that. Um, poles and spare poles. <laughs> <Sorry there. laughs> um, so yeah, I, I accidentally left the poles that JJ lent me at, um, at, at a, the Burger Van. <laughs> Burger Van. It was thirty-three miles into the race. I couldn't believe my eyes, but she posted them back, thankfully. And I had a spare set in my drop bag, thank God. So things like that. That's really important, isn't it, Mark? I think that bit about you know we'll get on a trainers in a minute too, but. You know, for that length of time, you've got to think about every eventuality. So potentially, you know, a good pair of poles, but actually you need a spare pair because anything can happen. Break. And that just proves it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a guy I know called Mike Churchyard who broke a pole during the winter spine, didn't have spares, and it materially affected his rate. I mean, he finished, but he um, he was pretty lopsided and it just takes the support. It gives your legs a little bit of a break. And over that distance, it really adds up. And I remember thinking, if I broke a pole, I'd want another one. So I put yeah. some poles in, and that worked out quite well. So you, you kit, it's a real, it's a real logistical <laughs> enterprise. This, this, this race, and I like that about it. And and um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's spare everything, and also I was I had sort of recovery drinks in in there as well. So I was able to you know, get to a checkpoint because when you get to a checkpoint. You, you, there's a misconception that you're immediately going to be hungry, but you're not. You're yeah. All in your legs. So what I would do is hand over a mixer bottle with a with a um, recovery drink in and say, could you just make this up? And I'll drink that. And maybe an hour later, I might eat. But my body had something to work with during the, those, short, those short breaks, which made a massive difference. Um, so little things like that. And I also had a list. When I opened my drop bag and pushed the lid back, I had a, a, a laminated list of the order in which I needed to do things because you tired. Um, yeah. And also I had a diagram of the layout of my drop bag because I wanted to make sure. There's a, I always say, be kind to your future self when you pack your drop bag because if you just shove everything in, you get to the next checkpoint, you're even more knackered, you open it, and this is this mess in front of you. Um, but if you pack it judiciously and neatly with and to a plan when you open it next time, everything is where you expect it to be. So I was quite fiddly and um, quite pernickety with, with my drop bag. So it, it's so much more than a run, you know, and, I, and I, I, I really enjoyed that side of it. So you've said, so you've talked, so you've got this drop bag and it goes from checkpoint to checkpoint. What what does a checkpoint look like? So you'll you'll get there, you'll arrive, you'll, you'll open your drop bag. Are there people helping you? And you know, you, you, you need to sleep. What, what, yeah. what happens sort of when you, so you've been fed and, and you're looking at things like that? The, the checkpoints are incredible places. Now, for this race, the, the limit, the time limit in each checkpoint is six hours. 
So if you need to sleep, you need to make, you want to get a decent sleep, you have to use your non-sleeping time really well. The, the volunteers and the checkpoints, there's two, there's two types of person at checkpoints, volunteers and medics, and they combine to make oh, an amazing team. So you get in there, the first thing they do is they check you in, um, they take off your shoes and your poles and they label them because everyone wears the same bloody shoes and uses the same bloody pole. <laughs> so they label them and put them in a store. And then they bring your drop bag. They'll do anything you want. They'll they'll say they basically say, look, treat us like your slaves because we just want to get you to the finish line. So you know, I was requesting cups of tea and asking for my recovery drink, and they were helping me get my socks off and put them in my. I had a black bin bag for all the mucky stuff, and they were t- helping me towel my feet down. And when I got to checkpoint two, my feet were really sore. So the medics were straight there and they were brilliant. They would so the first thing you do, they'd sit you down, bring your drop bag to you, ask you if you wanted anything to eat, and ask you if you needed a medic. The medic would be there, and the medic would say, We don't make a decision about your continuation of the race until you're leaving the checkpoint. You never make a decision when you arrive. When you arrive, you feel terrible. Yeah. We can solve pretty much anything. So, so I was really low coming to checkpoint two, my feet were really sore. And they just sat me down, they elevated my feet. I was literally sat my feet above my sort of waist with these two medics prodding my feet. And I mean, I'd been, you know, I'd have been in there about 10 minutes, if that. I was drinking tea and and drinking my recovery drink and shoving biscuits in. And they were basically telling me, look, your feet are okay. You're not, you're not, you haven't got a big problem. The more they'll do then is they'll say, do you want to eat? before you sleep or after you sleep. And I tended to eat after. I'd have a bit before, so I had a snack, a bit, maybe some toast. Um, then I would go and sleep. So I'd get my next day, or next stage running gig kit on, go and sleep. So in two types of checkpoints, some are tented and some are bunked. So if the tents were individual tents, you had your own tent. Um, and they would literally, they'd carry a drop bag for you. You would, they would to your tent and they would show you into your tent and I'd a sleeping bag and a, a thermo rest in my drop bag and I would sleep a couple of hours um, it's amazing what two hours sleep can do actually and then up I would get dressed and I would go and eat and there would be um, on the there'd be a huge whiteboard and it would have a layout on the tents of your name where you are your arrival time and your deadline leaving time you've got to okay so they would be, and if when you got within an hour, they would find you wherever you were and say you've got an hour. Um, and so then you would eat, you'd have a good meal. So it could be like a big lasagna or a like a I had a massive full English, I had all sorts, I was just shoveling it in. Um, and that they say in the instructions, one good meal per athlete per checkpoint. I had about four in each checkpoint because they just pile it on. It's just fantastic. And then when it's about 20 minutes before you do to go, they're literally dressing you and kicking you out. Yeah. Um, and it's a brilliant system. They're a good, they're a good laugh. Um, the medics are brilliant. They'll do, they'll look after the most minging feet possible. Um, and on you go to so checkpoints are wonderful places and, and that you just, your time there seems so fleeting. But one thing about the spine race that I love is the checkpoints. I just think that, yeah, the uplifting, incredible places. I mean, sadly, you see people that have pulled out, sat there looking very miserable. You just have to not look at them. <laughs> just, yeah. just don't look at them. Don't give them your pity. And just, just because it, they don't want you to look at them and you don't want the negativity. It's quite, that's quite a harsh element of it. Um, but yeah, checkpoints are fantastic places. 
So these are the official checkpoints, and yes. we've made reference to um, to one place um, just in Northumberland, Sluggyford. Talk talk a bit about the unofficial checkpoints and, and particular yeah. people around those. Well, what's happened with the spine race is because it's the same route every year, and it runs in winter and in summer. The the various things are starting to crop up on the route. So there's a lot of, of unofficial support. Now it's important to stress one of the rules of the spine race is you are not allowed any bespoke outside support. So if I arranged for JJ to turn up and give me a Mars bar at uh, Payden Hill or something, and nothing, I'd be disqualified. Or to, to, to take something off me or to give me a new pair of shoes, not allowed. Um, you're not even allowed someone to run with you. You're not allowed a pacer. They may not take anything, they give you anything, just not allowed any of that. Um, but they're happy for people to clap by, you know, by the side of the road, but they don't encourage it, but that's okay. But what's happening is they don't mind goodwill from the public and they don't mind things that are open. To, you're allowed to use shops and cafes because everybody can use shops and cafes. So you can do that as long as they're on the route. But what, what's happened is in the south part of the route, there's a triathlon club called Craven Triathlon Club. And they had a few spine completers in amongst their ranks. And they decided that the gap between checkpoint one and two is far too bloody big, because it is 65 miles. So they set up an unofficial feed station and they, their mission was to feed every runner from first to last. And they had this gazebo and they had bacon rolls and I got, it was about 63 miles in. It was like a, I'd heard they were going to do something and I arrived and I was sat down, they put a big silver blanket around me, shoved the bacon roll in my mouth and gave me a cup of tea. They had a tent, if you wanted to have a kip, I did, I went and had a 20 minute kip and um, it was wonderful. So that's that one. But of course, the, the premier, the premier deluxe unofficial support is our own Natasha Neeson and Mike when he's there as well. I can't leave Mike out of this. He, don't, he never gets any of the credit. But um, but Natasha um, was aware of it because I'd said to her, look, you do realise your cottage in Slaggyford, which is just after checkpoint four. So 189 miles in um, at Slaggyford. Uh, is on the route, literally on the Pennine Way. No deviation, it's on the route. <laughs> she was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then she started, um, the race was on, and I, I messaged her, said, are you at the cottage? Because Pavel Polanski is about to pass your cottage. He's leading the race. So she's out there, do you want a cup of tea or whatever? And then it grew. People got to know her, and they, they started dubbing her the Angel of Slaggyford. And I'm like, this is on the, there's, there's a closed spine Facebook group, which you become a member of if you enter the race. And I'm thinking, oh, that's by me. I knew, I knew that. <laughs> so she got quite a lot of notoriety by, you know, Jasmine Paris and various other sort of the elites. And then, but because she was be generous with everybody, the organisers were happy. They said, great, you know, no problem. So she's become a bit of a legend in the uh, in the spine fraternity um, for those doing. And was on the video this year as well. Yes, I noticed that. She got bloody more airtime than any of the runners. She did actually get more airtime than you, which that was brilliant, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was really good. But it's, so, uh, there's a bit of that. I mean, there's a few places. In Garrigill, there's a, a massive table full of orange juice and fruit and help yourself spiners. You know, it's just, it's absolutely lovely. I can't tell you how uplifting that is uh, when you pass something like that. It's great. And Natasha I mean, you've, you've, had me royally. Yeah, well, if, you, if people saw the pictures on Facebook, absolutely. 
it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a good. I think you've maybe got a bit of special treatment compared to others, but you know, yeah. we'll not mention that. Yeah, no, 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 bothered, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you were, you've sort of talked a little bit about highs and lows during. I mean, you know, we're talking. It's it didn't. We'll come to your time in a minute, but you know, doing that distance over seven days, you're going to have good and and bad points. How do you manage those? You know, what what do you do when you're feeling really low? What are the sort of things that that yeah. keep you going? I think the main thing is to realise that they are patches. When when you do shorter races and you you start to say, I know, lose energy or feel not great, there's a thing your mind does. Where it, it, it take let's say you're halfway through the race and you've gone from feeling okay to not okay. You tend to extrapolate how much worse you're going to feel in another half race distance time, and you imagine that it's going to be a nightmare. And, and what I've learned to do is to, to accept that that's just not logical. It doesn't, it's not how it works. If, if the first thing about a pad patch is to acknowledge that it's a patch, it's not the rot setting in. Because if you yeah. think the rot setting in, your race is over. You will not finish. Um, and you have to find a way. Of rem- and your brain's very crafty. It will lock you into that, that rat hole of thinking it's, it, this is it, the rot's set in. So I have a little aid memoir that tells me that it's not the case. I've got a little list in this pocket. I'm doing this. It's on my on my right, on my left strap pocket, and I'll fish it out, and it will tell me things that, remember, these are just patches. So the first thing I do is remember it's a patch. And then the next thing to do is to, is to just do a head-to-toe. Is anything actually causing this? Is something rubbing? Is something chafing more than normal? <laughs> um, yeah. Is there a problem? And then it's a case of, okay, slow down and eat. So food is usually the answer. So if I'll, I'll, I'll eat something or I'll put a gel in. Gels are horrible, but they'll lift you out of a bad patch potentially. So I only ever use them for that. Um, or if I'm, um, what I might do is think if there's a village three miles ahead and it's daytime, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to sit down on a, um, if there's a pub, I'm going to go and get a pint of Coke. I'll give myself little rewards or little treats. I always have an emergency Cadbury's cream egg, which is my calorie bomb. Um, if, if the bad patch won't stop and all the other things haven't worked, I'll eat that um, because that tends to do it. Um, they're just full of, they're so, they're so bad for you, but they're, <laughs> they're really good at getting you out of a bad patch. Um, or I'll have just something, some kind of treat. And you've got to tough it out. I mean, bad patches on ultras can last hours. They're, they're, yeah. not, they're not short-lived, but they do fluctuate. But, you know, you, you do get bits of hope. The other thing I'll try and do is if I look, I might look at the tracker. I like get my phone out and see where I am. And if there's a runner ahead or behind, I'll either slow down or I'll put a spurt in to just get some company. Because yeah. if you start talking to somebody, it can make a big difference. I did that a few times on this race just to try to give myself something to think about. And the other thing I might do is put my headphones in, listen to a podcast or some music, usually a comedy podcast. So I was listening to Peter Crouch, and um, <clears throat> which is quite good, just, just something or something really irreverent. What I don't tend to do, I don't listen to ultra running podcasts when you're doing ultras because they're really demoralizing because they tend to... <laughs> <laughs> like oh god yeah <laughs> so i've tried that once and it made me feel worse so um yeah there's lots of li- lots of things that you can do there's no formula i think it's just a bit of a check for me it's a bit of a checklist 
anything really I think it's having them in your head though isn't it it's having the ability to know that you can just you know pop something on do something different and it makes it makes a change and what about sleep text home just to just all yeah 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 looking and, at whatsapps yeah yeah and that really helps people have been wonderful and actually there's a couple of instances where conversations over messenger or whatsapp have just lifted me out of a bad patch so yeah it can help just a, a, those things that people are watching your dot yeah so we you've mentioned the uh, getting into checkpoints and there being tents and beds and stuff what how much sleep did you get over this whole period of, of this um of the spine race in the checkpoints total uh i didn't get any checkpoint one i didn't sleep at all there's no point it was fairly early in the race checkpoint two i got two hours three let me work this out i think i got just over eight hours in in checkpoints two three four and five but I also had about three hours worth of sleep uh, on the trail in just like what I call that ninja bivvies, where you just have a very yeah. quick chuck a sheet down, get your duvet jacket on, you know, buy a wall or in a barn and just get your head down for 20 minutes and just to pull you out of a really wobbly patch because um, the sleep deprivation issue is massive on this race. But you don't have this on a Bob Graham, you don't have it on even on two day events, uh, but you do on this. And I was hallucinating quite badly at the time. So yes, when you know you need to get some kit, or at least just get your... So come on, you've got to stop there, Seg. So, so that, this is the bit people want to hear about. <laughs> what hallucinations do you... What do you see? What, what, what are the sort of things that sort of pop up? Well, this time it was really, really odd. Um, I mean, it's always odd, but it was even weirder. So first thing that I was seeing, and this was at all times of day and night, so every time I looked at a rock or a stone, or even some grass, letters and words would form. Uh, they weren't necessarily in English words. Sometimes they were, but you would just see letters and numbers appearing and you knew they weren't there, but they would appear and they would rearrange and move <laughs> in front of your eyes. But you know they're not real. So it's not, it, you can rationalize it. You can still make yeah. decisions about navigating and food and, and tactics and, and you can be, make some quite intricate decisions about, about all sorts of things whilst you're seeing all this weird stuff. But this time to add to it, I, at Middleton, I had a real frightening one. I was, um, I got to the checkpoint at checkpoint three. <clears throat> so it's about 144 miles in. And I was sat just on this little veranda type thing. And I looked up, it was a nice morning. And there was some kind of sort of cumulus clouds in the sky, bits of blue, bits of white but the clouds formed into cartoon characters and, but they had really like the like really old school Disney sort of um, a bit like sort of Pinocchio type things from the thirties and forties, but they looked evil. They were really malevolent theory. <laughs> and I said to the medic, cause I talked to the medic about my feet and I said, can you just do me a favor? Look at that cloud. And she, she says, what about it? I said, can you see a face? And she said, right, you need some sleep. <laughs> just, <laughs> Me off. Good measure. <laughs> and, and that happened quite a bit. I was seeing faces and I was seeing words and letters um, pretty much from halfway right through. Yeah. To, um, it started there and it was quite, quite terrifying at times because, well, not terrifying, but really disconcerting, quite, quite disorientating. Um, but it happened to just about everybody. I mean, I, you, you'd, you'd catch people up or you'd speak to people and one of the topics of conversation was, what can you see? 
Yeah. The lad I saw said he, he was just seeing, he's worse than mine. He was saying he saw a lot of dead rabbits lying around, which was a line confusing because there were actually quite a lot. Lots of dead rabbits. <laughs> but he said he saw loads and loads of them, piles of them. He said it was really horrible. And um, so it's interesting how it affects us. Well, I thought you were going to cheer us up then, Mark, with sort of seeing Sorry. someone like Lee Majors. Or, but no, no, no you've just turned the corner. No, I didn't see Lee Majors this time. Very but people who don't know that you, you had, the last time you did the spine, Lee Majors appeared a few times, didn't he? he did, There'll yeah. be some people on here who don't know who Lee Majors is. That's oh, the worrying no. thing, Mark. I know, it's, it's quite quite depressing. But yes, seven, the six million dollar man and the four guy actor, he was, it was a dead tree. It was, by, it was a big dead tree by the side of River Tees. And I remember walking up to, I was with another runner and we were approaching the checkpoints, we were walking. And I said, that's Lee Majors, isn't it? Can you see Lee Majors there? He said, mate, it's a tree. It's, I said, I know it's a tree, but it's Lee Majors. And I, I, I just, it just stuck with me ever since. It was a really- oh, That's brilliant. Uh, this big square jaw and this big, big broad shoulders. I was like, oh my God, I was going slowly mad. <laughs> so, so uh, what, tell us a bit about the, what, how long it took you this year to complete the whole race? It took me five days and I think it was, what, 13 hours, something like that. Wow. So last time it took me six and a half days. So I was, I was a day quicker and I was really thrilled with that. I felt last time that I was very proud to have completed the race, but I knew I had a faster run in me. I made a lot of mistakes, um, particularly with footwear. But this time I think I got that right, although I did have a bit of a, an issue at one point. Um but yeah, uh, it just just over five just over five and a half days, and I think given the I had some bad luck with weather uh, towards the back end, I probably would have got under five and a half days. So I was really happy with how how that turned out, which put me that in. Uh, I think I was twenty fifth in the something like that. That's brilliant. So I was quite happy with that. I have to say, the best question I was asked during yeah. Um, your time was I got a message off Alison she said I've read your blog and I think I know when it was she said I'm ringing Mark but he's not answering the phone and she said what time do you think you'll come in and I'm like oh I really wouldn't want to guess I think this was before you'd got to hut one yeah which yeah. was on the very last leg and you were there was hut one hut two in there <laughs> but it was I tried my best to give a guesstimate time but obviously didn't know you know what was happening um on the sort of top achievement at that stage so it was uh, funny. Um, obviously, during that week, people were posting on Facebook and, you know, and were just, you know, seeing how you were doing. I know they were sending you messages and things. Did that, did you get much of that? Were you able to pick those things up and, and did they mean Sporadically, anything? Yeah, I mean, it was, I couldn't respond because you just, it, stopping and fiddling with your phone is tricky. I, I sent the odd little message, but I had to prioritise home really. But um, yes, I did get them and it was wonderful. I mean, when the weather was good, because when the weather's bad, I have my phone is double bag inside my bag. I don't want it getting wet. I don't want to trash it. Um, <clears throat> but I have it Bluetooth to my watch so I can see messages coming through. Yeah. And I'm seeing so many messages. So there's various, there's a WhatsApp group with my old schoolmates on it who they, they're, they're, they're not impressed by any of this. So they were keeping my feet well and truly on the ground. It was just insults and all the, the, all the names that, that I've been called since I was a kid who were just, you know, and they were, look, don't get me wrong, they were brilliant. They knew that I was yeah. hard. Uh, but they just spent the entire time just taking a mick, to be honest. 
Um, so I had that group and then you were giving me really like helpful things around the weather and just it was just nice to know that that you were kind of watching and Alison was obviously was sending me messages from the kids and I saw occasionally I would look on Facebook and see um, that that people were following and, and just basically willing me on I didn't actually what I didn't realize until after the race was that on the tracker um when people were looking at my dot you could leave messages on the track yes yeah. i didn't know any about any of that until i got to the no, end that's brilliant yeah got home and they were all there and there were some people on there that i had no idea would be watching so that was a really nice bonus and i got a, this there's something about this it's a there's a very sort of almost un-british thing about about that kind of thing but getting that kind of encouragement there's there's a kind of part of you that feels a little bit embarrassed that you're courting this, like you're going to be worried that people think you're trying to have attention. It's not attention, it's support. You, you need it. And so I thought I'm going to be selfish. And, and if people yeah. are willing me on, I want to know about it because I'm going to, there are going to be times where, I mean, there was one time at, um, at Sleetham. So this is between checkpoint two and three, just before halfway where out of nowhere I had a really bad nosebleed. It just got light. I was really groggy because dawn is a really tricky time when you run through the night. And my nose was gushing. I just, just don't know what was going on. And I felt awful and I felt a bit rubbish and there was blood all over my face and I had a buff pretty much wedged up my nose and felt really uncomfortable. And I just got my phone out and just saw these messages from people saying, go for it, mate, you're doing really well. And and uh, all that and it just it just got me to the next bivy point where I could just get there feel better sort myself out wash my face and and crack on so those things make an enormous difference not because you think you look good you just need support you know some people have... and I think people know I think people know that I think that's one of the reasons why you get those little messages just from people to you know to show that encouragement and, and see how things are going it's lovely. I mean, you know yourself, you've done long distance stuff when you get random texts at funny times at night. Yeah. Even if you can't answer them, it's just nice to get them. Um, it is, it is. Uh, that made a world. I'm really grateful for everybody that did that. I mean, it, it, seeing some of the pictures and seeing the, the, the change in you over that five and a half days, you know, we've seen sort of pictures of you at the finish. And I mean, you, you look spent, you look tired. What happens sort of once you've crossed the line and you've, and you've touched the wall, you've, the, the hotel, you've touched the wall. What, what happens over the next few hours and few days in terms of how that, that recovery and that start of that recovery? Well, immediately, you, you, you can't just go home. What they, they, they medically discharge you from the race. So what, what was lovely, though, is all of the crew, um, the finish line crew, so it's a bit like a checkpoint team, but it's a finish line team, they have a cottage uh, with, which they rent out literally about 100 yards from the finish. <clears throat> And what they did with me is, because they weren't a glut of finishes, I was between groups, really, um, is I, I finished and they said, well, why don't you, my wife and daughter were there, um, they weren't allowed to come into the cottage because of COVID, but they, they bought me and then they said, well, just go and use the shower. So I, Alison had bought me a, like a bag of fresh stuff. So I went and had a shower and then the medics wanted to check my feet over and they wanted to check me over. So whilst though I was waiting for the medic, because like the head medic, they gave me a full English. So Alison sat with Rosie in the in the hotel having hot chocolate and waiting for me. And I'm eating this full English. It was marvelous. That's brilliant. So they fed me, which uh, and then they gave my, my they gave me a proper like medical examination, really. 
and they wrote a, a, like a discharge sheet. They were, they, they were a bit worried about an infection, potentially one of my toes. And she drew a green line around my toe and said, if the redness extends beyond this line, you get yourself to a doctor. Um, okay. If it goes the other way, it's fine. And they, they dressed all my blisters. I didn't have that many this time. And my feet hadn't swollen that much. I was pleased with that. And they checked out my knees. I had a few problems with my knees. And they just asked me a few questions about how I felt. Um, and then Alison bundled me into the car and, and, um, and drove me home. So I had the, the, the kind of the twin pressures of in, intense tiredness trying to drop me to sleep. And Alison's driving, keeping me well and truly awake. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alison. But, yeah, uh, well, she'll get to hear it. Don't worry, she'll hear. Well, what about the, the next few days? So I've, I've read a few posts on Facebook where you've, you know, you've sat down for five minutes and you've eaten a packet of Jaffa cakes yeah. in five minutes. What, 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 what's happening to your body? Are you still eating? Or Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things the medic said, actually, when I finished was that you, you'll have lost weight during the race. That weight's going to keep coming off because the recovery is going to take the calories every bit as much as the running did. Yeah. And, and that's what I found. So I lost about eight pounds during the course of the race. I weighed myself when I got home and I'm now 11 pounds lighter than when I started. And that's six days later. But yeah, you, initially you're just very tired. So I got home Friday, uh, sort of mid morning. Alison very kindly drove me home. Um, and then I literally walked upstairs. I was fully clothed. I just sat on a bed and fell asleep and I had a um, few hours sleep. Then I was up, had some tea and went to bed. Um, and again, I had a 10 hour sleep, but I just did that throughout the weekend and was back at work on Monday. Um, and it, it's been quite hard to concentrate. Um, I've, I've been reasonably, but not especially productive this week. And yet I've been having naps during the day. Uh, I had, I did well, have, and during meetings, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. On was it Tuesday or Monday? I did drop off. It was Monday. Um, I was on a team's call. There were six people on the call um my team basically <laughs> and, and and i'm cheering this thing and i'm just nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding and and uh, I, I just drifted off and i, I came around all, all my team knew in fact there was a whatsapp group with them during the race um and when i came around they were like right okay mark you're back with us just just let's just go through what you've missed uh, honestly Brilliant. so nice and um i I, you know, that's been happening. Then I've been eating. I mean, gosh, I've been Charlotte Penfold and Cat, Cat as well have, have provided cakes. I've been scoffing cakes. Kate bought me a triple pack of Jaffa cakes. So I've scoffed all of them. I've just been hoovering stuff up. Um, Brilliant. And yeah, it's really bizarre. And I've, today's been the worst day for that. I've been absolutely ravenous. Um, and you just feel your body just completely annihilates what you eat and you want more. So this week's been, I've been a bit groggy, quite sedentary, although I did go to the club tonight because it was just driving me mad. Um, and yeah, I've been just wanting to eat everything and anything that's been put in front of me. It's been lovely. It's fantastic. So I've probably just got a couple of more things I wanted to ask, Mark, and then I'll hand back over to you. But mm -hmm. if, um, what would you say to somebody who was, um, who was thinking about, you know, this sort of multi-day, sort of continuous event what sort of what sort of and i don't like the word advice because i don't think that's but what, what would you say to somebody well what i would say is this is not something that only fast runners do this is this is a fantastically the, the skill set required is, does not involve uber athleticism 
it really doesn't clearly involves a lot of effort but if you think if you want a challenge that tests a lot of you then you don't have to be quick to complete these challenges the cutoffs are they're challenging but they're not they're not tight so i mean there's a guy called rick downs who did this he didn't finish this year but he finished two years ago and he's he's had a bit like johnny uh, he had a, a pacemaker and a kind of limiter on his heart so the medics obviously gave him permission to do the race provided he did certain things and he was so slick and so prepared that without really getting his heart rate very high at all and using sleep well and doing very good tactical racing he completed the race with a 12-hour buffer wow. and he's a really exact i mean he, he was one place behind me two years ago and we had a good chat at the end um and he was a real inspiration to me i just thought yeah he he there's another guy called les bins who's big chunky ex-forces guy he doesn't run a step or barely runs a step of the race he frog marches the whole thing but he's absolutely determined and really slick so all i would say is don't just think for a minute you have to be a good runner to do these events you don't you have to be you have to have you, you need to know why you're doing it you have to have your own personal why really nailed and you have to practice a different set of skills and and the, clearly the fitter you are the faster you'll be but there's so much more to it than that so i think if you if you're stuck in a rut with running and you want a challenge that extends beyond the running don't think that this is a preserve of fast runners it really really isn't um, and I think it's something that you can enter. I think doing Hardmore's events is a good way in, and maybe two-day mountain marathons is a good way of, of tackling an overnight. And and also the spine race does. You have to do the whole thing. The Challenger is 108, so it's first two checkpoints. And now they do what's called a sprint, which is the first checkpoint only, so 43 miles. It's funny, isn't it? 43 mile sprint, but. Um, they're good entry level sort of testers you test you get the atmosphere you get the event but you don't have to do 268 miles so yeah i, I think there's a, it, it's more inclusive than you might think brilliant i guess one of the last things i want to say was what what's next for for mark smith winter so I've what's that mark winter what's happening in winter i'm doing this race in january again <laughs> <laughs> so so you've you've done the summer spain you've done the summer spain before you said earlier you'd, you'd started a winter spain but it didn't quite work out so you're back again to do a winter so what date does this one start it's usually no i don't know the exact date but it will be the second weekend in january okay so the, the conditions are, are going to be very different yeah lots of darkness doesn't bother me because i know the way and I've, yeah the nav is the nav is the one thing i've always got right touch wood yeah. um the uh it's obviously going to be colder but what's interesting about this is speaking to a lot of guys that did the summer spine this year that have done the winter spine they were saying well yeah it is harder in winter because you have to carry more stuff but it's harder to regulate temperature in the summer because if it's hot you can't take your skin off but in yeah reason you can pile things on and actually you can just stay quite warm yeah these days is brilliant um so they thought that the actual, we had frosty nights during this, this race. There was frost and then there were warm, sticky days. So the actual kit challenges were quite considerable and you had to have your tactics bang on. Um, and that caused quite a few difficulties for people that bailed out. They were too cold at night. So I'm interested, it'd be interesting to see 
how I cope with a heavier pack and different ground conditions. It'll be muddier, it'll be wetter, and it might be snowy and icy. So you have to carry crampons, you have to carry sleeping yeah. and a bivy and all of that sort of stuff. So that's next. But one thing that doesn't frighten me is the distance. I think it's the, it's going to be the conditions that, yeah. uh, that are going to be a real test. So, but that's the ultimate. I think that's the hardest race in Britain, the winter spine. If I can do that, just to completion, I don't care how long it takes, as long as I'm in the country. Yeah, yeah. I'll be thrilled with that. I'll be really happy. Then I'll get off the spine and do something else. Do something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good for us all to know. We'll need to know the date because we'll all be planning or dot watching. I mean, I, I think the final thing I wanted to say was just well done. I think you, you'll you have seen from the comments, uh, you know, on the tracker, you'll have seen from the comments on Facebook, you know, people have been dead interested to see how things go. Yeah. And, you know, lots of people have been, have been sending good wishes and, um, you know, you've shared the blog, which is a great read. I think it just gives a, a lovely insight into what these type of events are like and, you know, the ups and downs of them. So, you know, congratulations on a, on a fantastic sort of performance and finishing that. Well done. Thanks very much. And I really, honestly, I really appreciate the fact that people have been supportive. It means an awful lot. It's, it, it isn't why you do it. The reasons you do it are in here, but by God, it doesn't help. Um, it would be it, it'd be churlish of me not to, to admit that. And it does give you a lift. It gives you a lot of self-confidence, you know, not, not arrogance, but it makes you pretty sort of happy with what you've done. You know it's that people are acknowledging that what, what you've done isn't easy. Um, and I, I think that, that, that goes a long way. That's one of the reasons we do it. And, and I, I think it just, it's a different type of running as well. I mean, one of the things about Polly, of course, is that it's a broad church. And, yeah. and, and I think this is another addition to that kind of canon of, of, of events, really. So if anybody did want to do it, I'd be more than happy to, to chat with them about it. Um, it, it, it is a really fantastic um, series of events, even the Challenger and the Sprint, they're all, they're all, really, they're of a, they're of a type. And I think it's it's a test of, of your whole self. And I think there's an awful lot to be said for that. But no, I really appreciate the comments. People have been brilliant. And I know that one thing I would say, you talked about what's it like the week after. Yes, you're eating a lot and you're sleeping a lot, but you, you just, I mean, my poor wife, she's got the patience of a saint. It is still your preoccupation. So I wanted to write it all down because I didn't need to get it out of my head. Yeah. Uh, and it, it it's a bit of a, People are humouring you, you know, and um, but again, people are interested, so you, you take that as a as a cue and you bore them to death. But um, but that's what it's like. You just you kind of want to live it a bit longer. Um, one of the things that um I don't think will happen. I might be wrong, but I think it would have happened by now if it's going to. Some people talk about you have quite a low period after achieving a big thing like this. I, I, for me, it feels more like a, 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 a deep contentment rather than a, a yearning for what's next. And I, I don't feel low at all. I've, I've just, I'm really proud of what, what I've done. And I'm really grateful for all the support I've had. And uh, yeah, I just think this is what life's all about. You've got to keep doing these things. Well, brilliant. Well done. Thanks very much. Awesome stuff. <laughs>